What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's episode was hype. I was pumped. I don't know why. I just felt like I was on one today, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy me going off on some questions. Um, I haven't done a Q&A in like three weeks. Three weeks ago, I did 10 ways to live a more successful life. The week after that, I did 10 ways to be the best coach possible. The week after that, I was out of town, so we actually did two back-to-back interviews. This week, I cranked on some questions. I actually went on Instagram Live, and I answered some questions on Instagram Live. So if you guys aren't following me on Instagram, check me out at, at Cody.BoomBoom. That's where I post the majority of my content at least two times a day on my newsfeed um, and many more times a day on my story. Um, and I DM every single person back. So like, if you, if you haven't reached out to me and you want to tell me something, you want to ask me something, whatever, reach out to me. I do DM everybody back no matter what. It is me doing so. Um, but... Before we get into the podcast today, um, I actually have a really cool announcement um, because I forgot, and I'm going to be completely honest, I got a busy schedule, and I was reminded. um, I shouted out, actually, this is perfect timing, too, because I think I did it three weeks ago. Uh, I think it might have been on one of those success podcasts. Um, I talked about basically giving away functional muscle for free. Um, or if you've already done functional muscle and I call your name, I'll give you density. But those are $70 ebook programs. They're worth way more. Um, I said, if you guys leave me a five-star rating and review, I'm going to pick the best one and then I am going to give them a book. So I'm going to shout you guys out right now. I'm actually, I haven't even really dug into them, um, but I'm going to dig into them right now. And I'm actually really pumped to see this. I have 176 ratings, guys. That feels good. Thank you so much. Um, Five stars, five out of five, everybody. Dude, that means the world to me. Okay, so I think I got to scroll down to the very bottom to see the most recent. So bear with me, guys. Stay tuned because your name is going to be called. So um, this is honestly humbling just reading all these. I'm, I'm going to give three ebooks away. Um, and if you guys have done my program, um, I just I, I can't pick one. I can't even pick two. These are just way too, way too good. I, I seriously... It, it literally is humbling and it just I, – I can't even describe the feeling I have when I read that I'm helping people who I've never met before live on the other opposite side of the world. Like I can't describe it. This is why I love what I do so much and I appreciate every single one of you guys for listening. Like the fact that you're listening to me talk right now, it, it means so much more. Like you're casually doing it but it means so much more than I can even express to you. So thank you for being here. I truly appreciate you for doing it. Um, I'm going to give three away. Here's what we're going to do. You guys can either have functional muscle. You can have density. You can have the nutrition hierarchy if you need um, nutrition guidance more than training. And then last but not least, if you already have all my books, you're stuck. You want to get on like a 15 to 20 minute call with me and just talk about where you're at and where you could be and how I can help you in any way, shape, or form. I will do that as well. I'm going to offer either one of these. You guys can Pick one only, um, and when I call out your name, you're going to email info at boomboomperformance.com. You're going to email my assistant, Tori, and you're going to let her know that you won the podcast review uh, contest or something. Just let her know what this is about. I'll, I'll text her and tell her that somebody's going to be – three people are going to be emailing her. Um, and let her know what you want. Do you want a call? Do you want one of the books? Whatever you need, just let her know. Um, the first one is going to go to Nicole Smith-Webb. The title of the review is You Can Hear His Passion for dot, 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 dot. So I didn't get to – I can't read the whole thing. But 
Um, her review said, stumbled upon this podcast three months ago thanks to Gunnar Peterson promoting his featured episode on Instagram. I quickly subscribed and legit this has become my favorite podcast. I'm sad when I'm all cut up and don't have a new episode to listen to. I connect to Cody's personality. I love the content he features and you can just tell he is passionate about what he does. You can hear his passion in each and every episode. Him and his guests insight have become so invaluable in my quest to become healthier and work out smarter. It seems like Boom Boom Performance is quickly growing, and I'm excited for all that he has to offer, both free and paid, in the future. That means the world to me. Nicole, thank you so much. I'm so glad Gunner was on the show. That was an awesome episode, and I'm glad that you came because of him. Nicole Smith-Webb, email info at boomboomperformance.com and let us know what you want from me. Um, the next one. Um, Zach... R40. His title was Boom Boom for Life. I love that. As a 22-year-old college student earning a degree in exercise physiology, I've always been in love with fitness and nutrition. After listening to multiple episodes, uh, fitness podcasts, sorry, after listening to multiple fitness podcasts, I can truly say that the Boom Boom Project covers the widest range of topics, puts out the best info, and features awesome guests. Finding Cody's podcast has increased my personal value more than I can even put a number on. The podcast has not only changed my views on training and nutrition, but also personal reflection inner peace and overall happiness cody has inspired me to not get sucked into the typical quote-unquote college experience of partying and wasting my time and push me to work out every day to work every day to better myself as cheesy as it sounds i do see cody as a mentor from afar overall give the boom boom performance podcast a listen apply the info you hear and i promise your life will shift in a positive direction god that means a lot dude like that's life-changing so, so happy to hear this, man. Zach R40, please email info at boomboomperformance.com so we can send you whatever you want. Um, the next one, the last one is going to be Adriana Ling. Amazing free content while motivated. Da, 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 da. I can't read the rest of the title. Five stars. I love BBP in all capital letters. Coming from years of CrossFit with some injuries from it, I wish I had found this podcast earlier. His many discussions on hormonal health, central nervous system recovery, and gut health resonates so resonated so much with me. Resonates, because I still talk about it. Resonates so much with me. Cody is so engaging with his free content and tireless efforts to get his message out to anyone. I love his guest and his topics. A few times I have asked a question on IG and it was answered that week on the podcast. That is amazing. I have purchased his ebook, Nutritional Hierarchy, and started his program, Functional Muscle, this week. I am pumped. Boom Boom Performance Podcast is now part of my weekly routine and I'm so grateful I have found it. Adriana Ling, thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for absorbing my content, supporting the movement, getting out all this stuff. And the fact that you have gone from some of the best transformations to me are the hardworking CrossFit athletes that I have a, an influence on changing. And, and some of them I don't even take out of CrossFit. But just being able to help them feel better, get better results aesthetically and performance-wise is always such a big plus for me. So, guys, if you were one of the three people I called out, email info at boomboomperformance.com. We are going to give you something for free. Just let us know what you want to do. Um, and without any further ado, let's get on to the Q&A. So the first question was from Courtney Sturgeon, Boom Boom Performance Coach. Shout out to Courtney. Really, really happy to have her on the team. Um, her first question was, how did the tat turn out? How did my tattoo end up? So I just actually posted a picture on Instagram of the tattoo. Um, it is pretty crazy. It's insane detail. I'm super happy with the results. But I will say, like, that tattoo took so much fucking time that I'm not very excited 
first session too, which was actually supposed to be today. So I was actually supposed to be getting a tattoo in a couple hours to finish the other entire side of my leg. Um, but I got sunburned as hell in San Diego, and the dude was like, I won't tat a sunburnt leg. So <laughs> I'm going to go back in on the 23rd and finish it. Um, but it turned out really good. I will say the knee is the most painful place I have ever been tattooed in my life. I have tattoos on my back, my arm, my wrist, my ankles, my shins, uh, my chest. The kneecap is so bad it's insane so um i got the kneecap done though so the the picture is actually cronus the greek god of time so my philosophy behind that is basically time is is not granted to us it's not it's it's a gift time is a gift time is not guaranteed time can be actually taken away um and we only have one chance at it and i know that's like yolo and kind of cheesy but um to me it's really important to be present it's something i'm i'm working on constantly and it's something I, I believe in my life i really want to practice being like spending my time as well as possible experiencing things as much as possible seeing new people seeing new places um just doing what i love for a living and, and just making every moment count and to me that symbolizes that cuz he is the i'm really into greek mythology and he is the greek god of time he can take away from anybody in the Greek mythology, like the, the story and everything in that. Um, so he's a powerful person. On the back of my leg, I'm getting a big B for my daughter, Blakely. Um, and I'm going to get a rose, like a really realistic rose below that, um, just to symbolize love, the love I have for my daughter. And then I am actually getting the eye of providence, which is the eyeball in the, in the pyramid um, on the uh, dollar bill. And basically what it, that is, it's the eye of God. And to me, that means somebody's always watching. So everything you do when no one's watching is actually being watched. It actually matters, right? So no matter what you're doing every moment of the day, that counts to the person you are becoming, the person you show up as, and the success you see in life. So that's like the whole sleeve concept. Um, like I said, Courtney asked that. That's the first question of the podcast. Um, and it hurt like hell. So I'm not excited for session two. Second question was, uh, again, from Courtney. She asked, deload weeks in the middle of a program. Listening to your body versus pushing through and finishing the program even though you feel shitty. So rule number one in deloads, none of us want to do it. Plain and simple, most of us want to train. Most of us are in the gym to work hard, to stress our muscles, to push ourselves, to get after it. But at the end of the day, we can't do that constantly. Um, and deloads aren't fun because you should actually leave a deload session. Like when you go into the gym and you're doing a deload day, deload week, you should actually leave the gym feeling good. You should be leaving with energy. You should leave feeling good. You should leave on top of it, like happy about the progress you just made um, and being in a good mood. You shouldn't be sweating. You shouldn't be crawling out of the gym. You shouldn't be feeling like shit. So if you're feeling like shit, um, and here's some signs that you should be doing a deload. You're sleeping poor. You have low energy. Um, you're tired and wired. So basically, you're wired during the day. You're tired of shit during night. S similar symptoms to when you need a reverse diet. Um, your motivation is very low. That's like the number one key, actually, that they've seen throughout studies and in, in, in empirical data and just experience. When you are not fired up to the go to the gym, that's when you need to deload. So if you're not getting amped up, if you're not motivated, if you're feeling like shit, if you're moody, if you're having these swings, you shouldn't actually go work out. You probably need to deload. I recommend deloading every four to 12 weeks. It really depends on the person. If somebody's training three times a week and they're doing full body, they don't probably need to deload as often because it's not a ton of volume. It's not a ton of intensity. You can only do so much in a full body session to really break things down. You have to be going really heavy. So you might be able to push it to 10, 12 weeks before you actually deload. And I have a lot of clients that I'll push that far. 
Um, but again, we're tracking biofeedback. So all of my clients are looking at sleep, mood, hunger, cravings, performance, motivation, all of these things, fatigue on a daily and a weekly basis. So when we go back and forth assessing this process, excuse me, reflecting on the weeks, we know like, oh shit, it's time for deload. We have to pull back a little bit. Um, now, if somebody's training four days a week, like if you're doing something like functional muscle, one of my programs where you're doing, um, and by the way, just a sneak preview, functional muscle 2.0 is going to be released soon. I'm planning on releasing it in September after my photo shoot. It's what I'm doing right now. So I'm actually testing it for my photo shoot. Super pumped about functional muscle 2.0. Haven't talked about it at all, except to a couple friends. So I'm going to drop that right here. I just want to let you guys know it's coming. Um, but if you're doing something like functional muscle, something like a West side conjugate method, something like a, um, a four day a week, upper lower split, you're probably going to want to deload every fourth or sixth or eighth week. Like that's at a point where you're actually doing enough volume. You're actually doing enough intensity. You're going hard in the gym. Um, you're training with enough of those things to where your nervous system is going to take a hit and we can't control that, but we can help and I'm actually, I'll take that back. We can control that. And the way we can control that is actually by implementing deloads. Um, and here's the deal. Like her main question, Courtney, and I know you're watching this on the live right now. Um, deload week in the middle of a program. Listening to your body versus pushing through. So this is where like I've had clients where typically I will say, hey, every fourth week we're probably going to deload. But let's say they get to four, week four and they're feeling great. They're sleeping great. The energy's high. Their motivation is high. They're killing in the gym. They're making progress. Clearly, that's a big sign. They're making progress. At that point, there's no reason in me deloading them because they're on a good path. Like, why stop what they're doing if they're making progress? Um, we'll push through. So then we go into week five. We go into week six. On week six, maybe all of a sudden in the middle of that second phase, because I typically block things out in four-week blocks, maybe in the middle of that second four-week phase, Everything hits the floor. Like they feel like shit. They're not sleeping well. They're not motivated. They're not having energy. They're not recovering. They're super fatigued. They're probably having more cravings than normal. At this point, I will put a deload in in the middle of the week. And this is the power of having a coach, an individualized coach. You are going back and forth and you have somebody who is an unbiased opinion who will not let ego step into the realm of what you're doing in the gym. And that's the problem with a lot of people. When I don't have a coach, I will push and I won't deload and it's not a good sign. That's why I always have a coach. Um, my coach is a nutrition coach right now, but even they, he'll tell me, yo, like we need to deload. We need to diet break. We need to refeed because he knows when I've gone a little bit too far. So I think it's very important that people understand you need to be track, tracking biofeedback. And if you can't afford a coach, I get it. Track biofeedback still. Use Google Sheets. That's what I use for myself. That's what I use for a lot of clients. Um, I have some different tracking methods, but you need to be tracking these things because if you're not tracking these things, you don't know when you need to deload. And, and like Courtney asked, like it could be in the middle of a program. You could be two weeks in and you need to deload. You could be 12 weeks in and you need to deload. Typically, I suggest, just so I can kind of round this up, I usually suggest every fourth, eighth, or 12 week, which is typically at the, the last week of a block, whether that's the first phase block, the second phase block, or the third phase block, right? So... Every um, program you essentially run, every four-week block, you should probably throw a deload in there. Um, if you're feeling amazing, you can push it to the next one, and it's really individual. It also depends on cardio. Like I see a lot of people doing lifting four days a week and high-intensity cardio two times a week. They're going to need to deload way quicker because their nervous system is on full throttle six days a week, whereas I typically 
like with my clients to balance the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So I will opt in for low intensity cardio more frequently, um, some low intensity isolation bodybuilding style training more frequently so that we can push it a little bit farther and actually wait till we have to deload because these people will um, be better off recovery wise. And that that actually kind of brings me right into my next question um, for the podcast, which is from Grant Kale on Facebook. Favorite methods of recovery, otherwise known as things you can add to the parasympathetic column. So for those of you watching the Facebook or the Instagram live um, or for the people listening on the podcast right now, go check out my IGTV. I'm going to be putting more of these out. Um, I just put out a video on this exact question because I think it's such a great, great way. Um, So what I talked about in this question is I kind of look at it like two shelves, right? If we're sitting here, like I got a bookshelf in the background. If I have two bookshelves right here, let's just call them shelves because they're not books that we're going to be using. Two shelves right next to me. One is sympathetic. One is parasympathetic. Every time I put something on that sympathetic shelf, I need to put something on that parasympathetic shelf. And what people don't realize is when we balance these things out, we don't have to deload as much. And on top of that, we're going to get better results because as we know, we need stress in order to elicit a change of our body. So remember, we need to make a stress on our body. We need to push it in the gym. We need to break down the tissue. We need to push our nervous system to stress out because the only way that our body actually goes through an adaptation phase is by needing to recover from that stress. So this is how we improve with everything in life. This is progressive overload. It it actually applies to relationships, to business, to mindset, all these things. We need to push into resistance and get some kind of stress. We need to recover so we adapt. Well, that recovery piece, that's on that parasympathetic uh, shelf. So I look at it like this. If I have a very, very hard training session, what's, what's on the shelf to help recover? If I'm doing high-intensity cardio, what's on the shelf to recover? If I'm in a deficit and I'm dieting, what's on the shelf to recover? Those are the things people manually put on the shelves, right? We put seven hours of sleep on, on the shelf every day for sympathetic or parasympathetic. We put low-intensity cardio, just walking um, on a bike, on elliptical, mobility, things like that. Those are low-intensity recovery sessions, right? And essentially they're cardio, right? We're burning calories, but we're not doing it to a point where our nervous system is tapping into that sympathetic mode, that sympathetic overdrive to really stress our body. We're putting these things on the shelf. We're putting training, deficit, all those things on the shelves, right? What people forget is that we actually don't manually put everything on the shelves. And what I mean by that is if you stay late at work, you didn't put that on your shelf. It's automatically put there and you probably ignored it. If you had a fight with your family, with your girlfriend, with your wife, if you, whatever it may be, you probably didn't put that on the shelf. It was automatically put there. You didn't manually do it. If you didn't get any sleep because you had to wake up early for work, because it's too hot in the room, because the baby woke up crying, whatever it may be, you didn't manually put that on the shelf. It was automatically put on. We forget about those automatic things. So usually when people look at like, oh, I got, you know, I, I do training this much. I sleep this much. I'm, I'm recovering with my refeed day. I got these things here. It's balanced out. My sympathetic and and parasympathetic are balanced out. Well, what people forget is that there's a bunch of shit on your sympathetic shelf that you're not accounting for. That is normal lifestyle stress. And this is something I really look into when I'm coaching people. How much stress is in your life? What's your schedule like? What's your family situation? Where do you live? What's your commute? What stresses you out? How much sleep are you getting? All these different things. Um, So I think like the key with balancing intensities is actually being able to look at your different stressors, good and bad, and actually truly balance them out 
with an unbiased opinion, without letting ego slip in, without thinking that you're hardcore enough or you're big enough, you're strong enough to push through. Um, because I can't tell you how many clients, and there's probably some watching this, I can't tell you how many clients I've had where I've literally been like, hey, we're going to drop intensity. We're going to train less. I actually just had a client this week where I found that you know we've been going back and forth on some things. We opted in for way less training, lower intense, some lower intensity sessions, and we actually increased calories because we've been trying to reverse diet, and she dropped two pounds last week. And I guarantee she's going to drop again this week. And it's because her body finally balanced and is able to recover and then adapt. And no, it doesn't always happen that way where we reduce training and we reduce or increase calories and boom, you drop weight. Because some people don't trade hard enough. But there are the cases where people are going a little too hard. So Grant's question was favorite methods of recovery. Um, to put on that parasympathetic uh, shelf, I'm a big fan of balancing your cardio. I think high-intensity cardio is great. I'm a big fan of putting those high-intensity intervals at the end of your session for like three to four rounds. If you're really pushing, like I'm in a photo shoot prep, so I'm doing more than four or five rounds um, each time. But I always do them on the same days as my lifting. So then I can couple all of my sympathetic nervous system dominant training, cardio, all that stuff together in one single day while letting my rest days, my recover days, be slow intensity cardio. Like I go on a walk and I track my heart rate to make sure I'm in a right range and that's it. I meditate while I'm walking. I listen to ebooks, whatever, audiobooks, whatever it may be. Um, I think that's one of the smartest ways is just simply walking. Um, another way is just simply sleep. Another way would be meditation, journaling, gratitude. Those things actually do have an effect on your nervous system because they lower stress, which lowers cortisol, which helps you get into that parasympathetic mode. Um, they do have an effect on muscle recovery, um, believe it or not. Um, sleep stress, uh, nutrition is another big one. Like those things are the key. And the reason I'm not saying anything like cryotherapy or ice baths and stuff like that is because a lot of those are very temporary, right? Like you'll, you'll immediately get a response from it and feel good, but it's not a long-term effect. Um, and actually a cool study came out on massage and this blew me away. Sports massage, when we get our muscles dug into, it feels fantastic. And then next, you know, like when we leave, we're like, man, I'm so loose. I can shimmy a little bit. I feel good. I'm about to go to the gym. Um, but the problem with that is what they found out is that even with that pressure and digging in, they actually figured out that it does not have a significant effect whatsoever on muscle recovery. On the actual tissue itself, digging in through muscle massage does not have an effect. What they did find out is that when you're getting a massage, you actually lower your stress, you lower your guard essentially, and you actually learn to relax and calm down, that lowers your parasympathetic state um, or your sympathetic state into a parasympathetic state. And that itself over time actually helps recovery more, but it's completely neural. It's a ner nervous system thing, which is crazy. Um, you think uh, you get a sports massage and digging into the muscles, that's what breaks up the tissue, right? We used to do this thing as trainers your tissue is like layers of stuff and then you get adhesions and you've got to dig in there and it, and it unravels them. Um, but it's crazy, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't do the same thing. Um, B Dolomite on Instagram live feed just asked any data on dry needling while I'm talking about this. Uh, for those on the podcast, I am on Instagram live. If you didn't pick up on that yet, um, any data on dry needling, I haven't dug into any data on dry needling yet. But I will say whether it is this nervous system thing or it's a placebo or whatever it may be, that shit works. I used to get dry needle all the time. Now they're protesting and trying to make it illegal in Washington, and I haven't been in a long time. But I used to go do dry needling. I, I trained with some guys that did that professionally, and I used to get it on a regu very regular basis, at least once a month. Um, a lot of pro athletes were doing it. It's 
I'm a big fan of it. I think it's very beneficial, but I think it might be the exact same concept. I think it may be more of a nervous system benefit than anything else, um, and that's why it's working. So I know I missed a question. Um, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to even try to pronounce your name. Actually, I will. Fuck it. Hans Schaeffelbein. Do you have a good resource for this sympathetic slash parasympathetic convo? Um, the best thing to do right now is to go check out my IGTV live. I did like a 10-minute video all about this. Um, if not that, I know the uh, Renaissance Periodization guys just came out with a recovery book. I don't think it talks necessarily about this topic, um, but I'm, I'm actually – I just bought it. I haven't even dug into it yet. Um, but I know it's it's a recovery book, so they got to mention it at some point. But I think just following me, following my YouTube, following my podcast, follow Jason Phillips, Diane Three People. Um, we talk about this stuff a lot because it's really really important. And the reason our clients are burning fat, building muscle, and performing way better, and seeing these insane results is because as coaches, we individualize things and we understand how to balance this equation between the nervous system um, dominations. I guess you could say. Next question. Um, Grant Kale had a few, so we're going to run through Grant Kale's. He said, what is the weirdest or craziest diet someone has to come, come to you following? Man, that is a tough question. Um, I think the craziest diet anybody who has ever – you know what? I'm going to be completely transparent on here and say the craziest diet I've ever done because I think I've seen somebody doing everything, literally. Um, it's pretty ins- – like I, I've seen – as you can know – I mean, at this point, I actually think I've coached thousands of people um, in person, online, um, even just answering emails, like tens of thousands of emails answered, comments answered, things like that on my blog. Um, And I think I've seen everything as far as diets go, quite a bit. The craziest thing that I've seen a couple people do that I did, this is the first thing I did. When I was trying to lose weight, I was 18 years old, and I I worked at a Rite Aid. This is a funny story. I worked at a Rite Aid. And uh, if you guys don't know what Rite Aid is, it's like a CVS. It's like a little grocery store pharmacy. It was in the hood. It was on a highway. It was super ghetto. I remember specifically people, uh, I don't know if she was drunk, on crack, what, but like fainting in the store multiple times, like having to get ambulance. I had to chase people out for shoplifting. It's a pretty crazy job. But I bought this stuff called HCG. And if you guys know what I'm talking about, give the video a like if you've, if you've tried or if you know somebody who's tried HCG. It's like these little droplets, right? Um, and it's, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So basically you, you, you take these droplets and when you take these droplets, I think you can only consume like 500 calories and it's, it's a very like I want to say you have to eat these bars. Like, they sell you these bars, too. Of course, they, everything is in the package. You got to pay for all the shit. So they sell you these bars. They're like rice bars. And uh, you eat those. And I think you get, like, one meal of, like, chicken and brown rice at the end of the night or some shit. And uh, you take these droplets every day. And you lose a ton of weight. So um, the first thing I did when I was 18 years old and I really wanted to lose weight, I was uh, – I had I'd been through two knee injuries, surgery. Um, I wasn't going to uh, school for what I planned on going to school for yet. Um, I wasn't working out. I never stepped foot in the gym. I couldn't skateboard anymore. I couldn't play soccer because my knee, I just had rehabilitated it. And, uh, the first thing I did, I was like, well, fuck it. If I can't train, I don't know anything about fitness. I'm intimidated about the gym. I don't want to go there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take these HCG droplets. So I would take these droplets. I would eat 500 calories a day and I lost a ton of weight. Lo and behold, I was eating 500 calories a day. You wonder why I lost weight, right? I cut out, I was eating, drinking soda and energy drinks and eating shit, cookies, um, top of ramen, all this kind of stuff all the time. Um, 
no wonder I lost weight, right? The thing about it is, is I, I so I did that, and then I went on this ski trip and started eating normal again. And when I came home, I just went back to my normal diet, hoping the weight would stay off. I gained all that weight back um, and was back to feeling like shit. And then I finally resorted to getting in shape and actually training and stuff. So the craziest diet I've ever seen anybody follow um, was actually myself. And it was the HCG diet. And I've actually had clients come to me who have fallen that as well. Um, so, yeah, not, not recommended for anybody out there watching this um, or listening to this. Uh, he also asked, what is your, this is some personality questions. What are your, what is your go-to workout song that gets you pumped up? Man, um, my go-to song right now is, and this is, you guys are going to laugh, this is not what people expect. My go-to song right now that I've been bumping in my headphones when I'm in the garage working out is Ted Nugent, Stormtrooper, or Stranglehold, one of the two. Um, crazy good song, insane, insane, uh. Insane guitarist. I think that or Rage Against the Machine. I, I like rock. When I when I work out, I like hard rock um, or like super hood rap like Meek Mill. Um, but, I, but I like to, to do that stuff. So, all right, next question. Simply White 1026, how to be your client. Shoot me a DM um, and we can talk about like options and my team and what I do and, and how you can apply and everything like that. And we'll go from there. So just shoot me a DM. Um, Ian Dickinson asked, oh, Oh, wait, no, that was the second one. Okay, the first one, Ian Dickinson asked, exercises for working on valgus knees. So if you guys don't know what valgus knee is, valgus knee is like, uh, I can't really show you because I'm not standing up, but it, when you're, pretend this is the middle of my body, my knee caves in. So we've all seen the squat where you're, where you're doing a squat and your knees buckle in towards each other. Well, there's a couple different cases of valgus knee. Valgus knee um, in the mild case is very weak quads and probably weak external rotation or poor external rotation of the hips, which could be benefited from uh, hip mobility, but also building your glute strength. So if you, if you walk around fine, you have no issues when you walk around, but when you go to squat, your knees buckle in super hard. You cave in um, at the bottom of the squat, and as you start to come back up, they, they correct themselves. That is usually because A, you have weak quads, or B, you have weak external rotators, which are these muscles inside of your hip that actually let your, your uh, knees push out. They let your hips rotate outward. Your knees will kind of push outward, um, and then you can have more stability in the squat. And this is why, like, the mobility-stability continuum is so important to understand because – so we're going to look at this in a couple ways. The first one is going to be mobility-stability, and, and this mobility-stability continuum – we got to look at our joint by uh, our, all of our joints by joint by joint approach. Our ankles are mobile. Our knees are stable. Our hips are mobile. Our lumbar spine, which is our low back, is stable. Our thoracic spine, which is our mid back, is mobile. So we go up the chain and literally up the chain, but joint by joint, they alternate back and forth. And what this tells us is that if you have very unstable knees, you you keep buckling and you can't. I always tell my clients, rip the floor, floor, pry the floor apart, almost act as if your, your foot on the floor is like a hand and you're like a monkey grabbing the hand or floor and twisting it outward. And this is the same thing I do with a push-up. I rotate my hands outward so my lats pack, my shoulders pack. Well, the same thing applies to a squat. If I can rotate my feet into the floor and I can corkscrew that and twist outward, I'm going to create more hip stability, more external rotation. My knees are going to have more support. So a lot of people don't have that hip mobility um, or the ankle mobility to squat properly. And what happens? Their knees try to make up for it. And when your knees try to make up for the mobility that your ankles and hips don't have and they are a stable joint, 
we get injury. So that's one cause of this valgus knee. It could just be poor mobility in your ankles or hips. So definitely work on that. Um, another thing could be weak quads. When we get into a deep position of a squat, our quad is in that full stretched position. And as a muscle, it is supposed to be strong in every point of the range of motion. And what that means is when I'm in that low part of the squat, that stretched position, my quad still needs to activate. And if it's not strong enough to do so, or it has tightness in the hip flexors, the rectus femoris, all these different muscles that interject into the quad, if they're all weak and they can't do the work performed, then you're going to have issues. You're going to buckle your, your hips are going to have to try to take over. Your adductors are actually going to have to try to take over. Um, and that's why a lot of people will have like adductors. So your inner thigh, they'll have pain or strains in their adductor that actually go up into their growing. They go up into their abdomens and they get this weird feeling, this painful f- feeling. Um, and it can activate even more when you go sprint. So people get it from sprinting as well. All these things happens from just weak adductors, weak quads, um, and then last but not least, probably weak glutes. So if you've attacked both of those, your glutes might not be strong enough and your hips might not be mobile enough to create true external rotation of the hip, and then uh, that's why you're not ripping apart. Um, And Gomez just asked, would that be the same reason for when your feet collapse inward? Exactly. So that's exactly what I was going to get to next. Um, the other thing could be is when we have that eversion, the inversion of the ankle, when you see your ankle kind of rolls in and that, that bolt, that socket joint at the bottom is kind of caving inward. Um, and people, you can notice this just by looking at the shoes of people's feet. You ever seen the, the soles of people's shoes are just worn thin on the inside because their, their feet are caved in? Well, that can be the exact same thing. And again, when we have an issue with one joint, it's going to connect up the chain. So the reason for valgus knees could be a lot of different things. If your knees are buckling, you have like a small case of valgus knees. If you're walking around on a daily basis with valgus knee, you really have something going on and it's probably multiple of these things. Um, And I can give a ton of information on this. Step one is applying this stuff and looking into your ankles, your hips, um, your glute strength, your quad strength, your adductor strength, your flexibility within the quad, the rectus femoris, and the hip flexor itself, um, and trying to assess those things. If it does not go away, you need to see a physical therapist. You need to see a trainer or a coach in person so they can actually assess you and see what's going on. Um, and that's kind of how you, you take things to the next level. Um, if you have valgus knee from a structural standpoint, and what I mean by that is there's actually, like, you can get x-rays and you can see people whose, their hips or knees actually are, are their bones and their joints are actually shifted into a position where they are caved in and they walk like that, right? I have a client that has, I think he, I don't think you know if he's born with it. He's seven foot tall. He's huge. This dude from Australia, shout out if he's watching this, uh, but he has horrible knees. So we, can, we really can't even train him much. We have to do very, very limited, some hamstring work, um, more like cycling on an extra tall bike because his knees hit the handles. It's crazy. Um, and then a lot of upper body and core because he can't really do much. His knees are that way. Um, some people structurally are just set with valgus knee. They can't, we can't take somebody's bone structure and shift it or change it. It's just, that's just the way it is. Um, so it really depends where you're at, but I would start with those things that I just, uh, went over. Um, Rebecca McCauley. So she has a long one. Um, I'm going to kind of, uh, summarize it. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting for fat loss? There's two parts to this question. So that's the first one. What are my thoughts on intermittent fasting for fat loss? Well, a recent study, actually it wasn't even recent. I think Eric, like, It was done in like 2016, but it takes so long to get published. I don't know when it was actually published. But basically, this study showed that um, 
intermittent fasting really doesn't do much for fat loss. It, they showed that the group that was intermittent fasting actually did lose more fat mass. They lost more weight. They lost more fat compared to the group that was not fasting. But what they determined was the difference is actually a small calorie deficit. And I believe it was as simple as like 200 calories, maybe 250, uh, but it was naturally done. So these people had to track their calories, had to track their weight. Um, and you can go to Strength by Science, I think is his website. It's Greg Knuckles who published this article on the study. Uh, but they both groups lost, but the intermittent fasting group lost more, but it was more, I don't know if it was completely intuitive, but they did track calories. And what they noticed is the people who were intermittent fasting naturally, just intuitively ate less food. So by the end of the study, of course they lost more weight, but the reason they lost more weight is actually simply because they were in a calorie deficit. So with with a calorie deficit, you're going to lose weight. That's obvious. With intermittent fasting, it's really just a tool to allow you to get to that calorie deficit more easily. So for me personally, I don't like intermittent fasting. I like waking up and eating. I'm hungry right when I get out of bed. Um, I eat a very high-protein diet by choice, not because I'm going to build more muscle, but I just enjoy more protein. So I have more meals throughout the day. Um, and that's just how I like it. And it's what's going to allow me to adhere to my diet more. And as I diet for this photo shoot, I'm going to have higher protein, which is going to help me maintain more muscle, um, not gain more, but maintain more muscle mass as I go lower in calories. Now, if I go on a trip, I just got back from San Diego. I'm a little burnt if you guys can't tell. And, uh, when I was there, I did intermittent fasting, right? I woke up, went to the airport. I fasted the whole way through the flight. When I got off the flight, it was like 11 a.m. I think I ate breakfast at 1 p.m. Um, and then I ate dinner at like 5 p.m. And then we had drinks and I was done for the day. So I had two meals. Meal one was very light. I didn't train that day. It was very light, protein and veg. Um, meal two was a little bit bigger because it was dinner with all my boys. And then we had drinks and that was a lot of calories. So I purposely use intermittent fasting as a flexibility tool when traveling, when I know I'm going to be drinking, when I have a family birthday party, um, like we had my, our nephew's birthday not that long ago. I knew I was going to be eating burgers and stuff. I intermittent fasted. It's a very easy tool to use for fat loss. But it inherently doesn't it, – it indirectly. So it indirectly helps you lose weight simply because it's an easier way to adhere to the diet if that is you. It's not for me on a regular basis, but at times I do it. Um, so it, it really, really depends. Um, as far as health benefits, there's a lot of health benefits from intermittent fasting that can indirectly lead to fat loss long term. But I think those are very long term. And I'm talking about like – if we look at the scale of like five to 10 years, I think you will live a lifestyle at a leaner physique if you implement some intermittent fasting on an irregular basis for a longer period of time. And what that means is once a week or once a month even, you're doing a full day fast, like 24 hours. Um, some people even go 36, whatever. Um, so it really depends, but um, I would say that those individuals are going to have benefits long term because intermittent fasting is going to give you so many health benefits, insulin sensitivity benefits, some hormonal benefits that will pay off long term. Um, but as a tool to use daily, the only difference between that and regular dieting is that it creates a caloric deficit, and I've shown they've shown that in studies. I'm not the guy taking these these studies. Um, but they've shown that in studies, so I think that's very important to note. Um, if it helps you adhere to the plan, then great. That's the purpose of individualized coaching, individualized nutrition. It's meant and it's designed to do what you want it to do um, and get you to the end goal a little bit easier. Um, Natal I'm going to butcher your name. Man, I'm horrible at names. Natalie, Natalie I'm not going to try your last name. I'm sorry, but I will answer your question, and I appreciate you for being here. 
how to lose body fat percentage and not lose the muscle gained. So this is where studies have come out. Um, so there's a couple ways. Number one, take a slower route. If you're going to lose if you're going to try to lose uh, as much fat as possible and you're going to try to maintain as much muscle as possible, I would literally set a deadline and then double it. And I know that seems extreme, but if you're like, I want to be here in 12 weeks, you should probably shoot for at least 10 to 12 weeks. Or I'm mean, sorry, uh, at least 20 to 24 weeks and double it. Because if you double that time and you give yourself more time to get to that end goal, the slower you move, the less hormonal damage you will do and the easier it will be to maintain muscle. So just plan a bigger a bigger way to do it. Um, the next way, um, there's actually a lot of strategies I'm going to give you. So the next way, practice a 5-2 calorie loading scheme. And I actually just did a video. Hopefully it will be out today, if not tomorrow. Um, we'll see if uh, the media guy can crank that shit out quick. But five days a week, you're in a calorie deficit. Two days a week, back-to-back, you actually do refeeds. This is like a mini diet break. You actually bring your calories up to a maintenance or surplus level, usually via carbs. Um, What this is going to do is actually going to do what a cheat meal back in the day or a refeed day is actually supposed to do. It's going to help bring ghrelin up. It's going to help bring leptin up. It's going to help bring um, a little bit of a metabolic boost. It's going to save cortisol, testosterone, all these stress and sex hormones. Um, Basically, it's like an insurance policy because what studies have shown is after 48 hours, you actually start to see these hormonal benefits. A 24-hour refeed one day isn't enough to increase all these hormones that you need increased or that you need to save while being on a diet. 48 hours, however, is enough. So one way you can maintain muscle is actually have two days a week where you're in a, in a maintenance or surplus. So maybe you create a little bit of a deficit five days a week. You have two days a week back-to-back that you're at maintenance calories, high-protein, high-carb. And then you go back to your uh, plan the next week, right? And you just cycle this. You probably take a little bit longer than, than excuse me, trying to rush the process because slower is better. But those two days are going to help you quite a bit. Another one is actually to increase protein to body weight, if not more. And uh, I got I to gotta put this out there, guys. And then this is actually really cool. So I'm having, after this podcast, so in a couple hours, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Uh, Jose Antonio, who is a protein researcher. He's the leading protein researcher and the owner of the Journal of International Society Sports Nutrition, I think it is. It's a lot of J-I-S-S-S-N, whatever. Um, he, uh, he's coming on the show today, and we're going to talk all protein. And he did a study where people were eating twice as much protein as their body weight, and they did not have any negative side effects. I do not recommend eating that much protein. You will be, for lack of a better term, shitting your pants and gassing up. But what this shows us is that you don't have to fear having your body weight in protein. That's not too much protein. Um, so on a diet, what they actually did is in another study, they actually brought protein up to 1.2 grams per pound. Um, and I think it was up to 1.5 grams per pound in some women who were like really lightweight. So between 100 and 120 pounds. At that point, you're so light, you can go a little bit higher. But what they did is on a diet, they brought protein up to that 1.2, 1.5 range. And they actually saw a, a significant difference in the ability to maintain muscle mass and the ability to adhere to the diet because protein is the most satiating nutrient you can possibly eat. So I'm not a huge advocate of high protein diets. And, and when I'm in like, uh, I guess you could call it off season, I'm not a bodybuilder, but when I'm not cutting or dieting, I actually have my my protein below one gram per pound because I eat a lot of carbs when I'm not dieting. And so I'd rather have less protein. I get the bare minimum, which is 0.8 grams per pound. Um, but right now I have uh, 1.25 grams per pound because I'm dieting, I'm dropping calories, I'm doing cardio, I'm cutting. I want to maintain as much muscle as possible and I want to stay satiated 
as I diet. So that's another strategy you can use um, to make sure you're maintaining muscle. The last one I'm going to give you is doing something like the Matador study. So the Matador study was a study that showed people on a diet for, I think it was eight weeks, and then another group was longer. And I'm going to butcher some of this information. So if you really want to dig into this, go to Google and search up the Matador study. But I think the other group was twice as long. So an eight-week group, eight group dieted linearly. So they, had this, the, uh, they created a calorie deficit, and they just dieted every week all the way through, eight weeks. They lost the weight. The other group didn't diet linearly. They alternated their calories week to week. And what that means is week one, they had a low calorie base. They had a pretty big deficit. Um, week two, they had maintenance. Week three, they had calorie deficit. And I actually think it might have been week one, calorie deficit, week two and three, calorie maintenance. They had one or two weeks in a maintenance. Um, or it could have been flip-flop. But the point is, is they actually alternated these weeks. And I've done this with clients where I alternate every single week, one week on, one week off, one week on, one week off. I've done it two and two. I've done it one and two, and I've done it two and one. They all work in the same capacity, they're just meant for different people. Meaning if you need more recovery because you've dieted for a long time, you're in the need of a reverse diet, you might be in the people that only have one week in a deficit, two weeks of maintenance. But the point of this is, is what they found at the end of the time, even though it took longer to lose the weight, these people who did this strategy, they actually lost the same amount of weight. They maintained their metabolism in all hormonal profiles, and they actually maintain more muscle mass. And what that tells us is that if we can intermittently interject these maintenance weeks we will maintain more muscle mass on a cut. And the last thing anybody wants to be is skinny fat when they get to their goal. So this is a great way to go. And I use this strategy all the single time. So you just said areas just said every week for me. And I get it. Like some people can adhere to that better. So the, the caveat with these alternating weeks is going to be that the week that you're in a deficit, you actually have to go pretty low. You have to create a big deficit to get there. Um, so I'm glad you said that because I think that everybody is different and everybody needs to kind of figure out what works for them. Gwenin asked, uh, Gwenin underscore mayor, can you keep changing your body composition at maintenance calories for a long period of time? Um, I'm not sure I 100% get what you're saying. So if you're still watching this, uh, drop another question below and just let me know if I'm on the right path. Um, basically, for a long period of time, can you maintain or I mean change your body composition at maintenance level calories? Can you see changes? Can you build muscle or can you burn fat at maintenance levels? And I think the answer is yes, but I think it depends on a lot of things. Um, if you come to me and you are training three days a week, you're not doing any cardio, um, and you're eating maintenance calories, um, I think that I can because you haven't implemented many strategies yet. We can add an intermittent fasting day. We can cycle calories throughout the week. We can cycle, cycle calories week to week. We can add these, these multiple refeed days in a row. We can change your training to a, a standpoint where you're going to be building more muscle, burning more fat. So we can implement a lot of things. Um, I think the only other time is if somebody drastically changes what they're doing and the body has to seriously adapt. Meaning, if somebody goes from, and I've seen this before, if somebody goes from doing CrossFit, and I guess this is the other, the other way. If somebody's doing CrossFit, and I get this a lot, I get CrossFit clients who are burnt out. If you're doing CrossFit a lot, and there's nothing wrong with CrossFit. I actually like it. I think it's dope. I just think some people take it a little too far, and it makes sense. It's addicting. I've done it before. Um, but if they're addicted to that intensity and they're just going hard all the time and they come to me and I bring their calories up to maintenance or a surplus, they actually lose fat because their body wasn't being supplied with enough um, – both calories but also just parasympathetic modes or times of the day of the week to actually fully recover and adapt from the stimulus they're providing it, which is that CrossFit. So I think at certain times you can burn fat on a maintenance calories 
if we are smart about balancing that equation of sympathetic and parasympathetic, which I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast. Um, so it really, really depends. In most cases, no, you can't because if you're at maintenance and I don't change your calories, but I change your training, technically we're creating a bigger deficit. Um, so I think that there's a lot of caveats with hormonal and recovery demands, but I also believe that at the end of the day, calories in versus calories out is a mathematical, it's a science-proven statistical equation that we have to abide by. All right. Um, this is the last question from the live, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut this down and just do the podcast. Um, because I can't, I can't give it all away on here, guys. Hey, I just can't seem to get rid of belly fat, and I'm not. Whoa, 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 hold on, I'm reading this wrong. Hey, I just can't seem to get rid of belly fat and not fat. I train six days a week, and now I'm not eating any junk food. Can you please help me? Um, not enough information to be honest with you. Uh, if you can't get rid of belly fat, and I think you said you said not fat, I train. Um, if you're saying you train six days a week, you could be in that state where you're just going too hard, you're not recovering enough. So a lot of people that I take uh, control of their programming and their nutrition, a lot of times they they just don't have the structure that they need. They're not balancing uh, stress and recovery enough to adapt and see the changes they want to see. So I take them and I balance things out. I create a real structure um, and I dial things in because it could be a million things. I could look into your diet and your your uh, your macros could be off, right? You could be not getting enough carbs, not getting enough fat from hormonal purposes. You could be under eating protein. Um, you could be doing training that's not beneficial to actually create a deficit or build muscle. Um, your nervous system can be a little taxed and not enough um, not enough recovery on that end. Um, it could be a million different things, and there's so many things I can go into. Stress, it could be not enough sleep. So I would just kind of look through the checklist, right? Like how is your sleep? How is your macros? Um, is your training actually pushing you? Is your training pushing you too much? Are you doing any cardio to supplement that, like burn calories and recover properly? Do you have external stress in your life? Do you have any gut issues? Because that can block things too. Um, there's a lot going on here, and there's too much going on that I could really answer that question for you specifically. I would just recommend kind of looking down the biofeedback checklist. All right, the IGTV, no, not IGTV, IG Live video is is done. Guys, if you're not following me on Instagram, go give me a follow. That's where I put out most of my content, two to three times a day, um, at least five times a day on story. I'm literally posting so much information. I DM every single person that DMs me back, unless they are a spammer trying to get me to buy followers or do some stupid shit, because that happens so much on Instagram, which is annoying. But the point is... Um, if you don't follow me, go follow me, guys. I'm going to be doing some live videos more often. Um, but back to the questions. Rebecca McCauley has another question. I get in the habit of eating chicken. Or I'm sorry. I skipped a line. I get in the habit of eating the same protein sources daily for macro convenience. Chicken, egg whites, and shrimp mostly. I've considered adding more variety in implementing a day of strictly vegan plus plant proteins. What are your thoughts on this slash benefits of adding variety? So... I'm not going to touch on this too much because I am literally in two hours interviewing the protein guru, um, and I'm so pumped to have him on, Dr. Jose Antonio. Um, I actually was supposed to have him on weeks ago, and then he had to reschedule because he was being sick, and then we rescheduled on a day that I forgot was baby duty, so I had my daughter, and I couldn't do it. So now, last minute yesterday, he emailed us, had an opening. We're going to get him on the show today, and I'm pumped, but he's going to answer this question for you. Now, I'm going to make my prediction of what his answer is so that we can actually double-check it when the time comes when he's actually on the show. Um, 
I believe that it's smart to vary your proteins for a couple reasons. Number one reason is adherence. You're going to get sick of protein. And I know a lot of people who actually physically can't eat chicken anymore or physically can't eat ground turkey anymore because they ate it so much that it just makes them sick now. It makes them nauseous. So to avoid that, I think it's smart to rotate your proteins. Um, I think it's smart to rotate your proteins by flavor, by taste, by adherence, and also by bioavailability. And what I mean by that is we look at the leucine content, essentially, branched-chain amino acid content of these foods. Uh, we know that white fish is great. We know that steak is great. We know that chicken, turkey, and egg whites are great. Um, most dairy is good. It's more casein, but it's still high in those branched-chain amino acids. Shrimp, from what I know, is fine. It's not as great, but it's still a protein source. Um, so bioavailability is key, and I think just rotating based on your adherence I think would be smart. And I do think the – I believe the body is such an adaptive thing that I think everything we give it, no matter what, is going to be super – it's going to be adaptive at some point, meaning – at a certain point, you are probably going to adapt to what you're doing, and it's probably going to give you more benefit from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint to switch that up. So I would say yes. My guess is it's probably going to be beneficial, but main, mainly just because adherence is going to be higher if you switch things up and you get more creativity. Now, as far as like a strictly vegan day, um, I do believe it's smart. I think uh, – I, I believe in – I'm not doing it right now because I'm prepping for a photo shoot, so I'm more dialed in than I've ever been. Um, not ever because when I did a show, I was – when I did a show, I didn't know what flexible dieting was. So I would talk about dialed in. It was overly. But when I get off this photo shoot prep, I am going to get back to doing a low-protein day, and I think it's smart. I think taking one day to cut your protein um, in like 50 to 75%, um, more like 50, cut it in half and only get it from plant sources, I think is smart. I don't know if there's any studies to prove this yet, but I've, I know a lot of people who are implementing this because they believe that it increases your muscle protein sensi uh, synthesis sensitivity. Damn, that's a hard word to say. Synthesis sensitivity when you come back to protein. So if I have meatless Mondays and I drop my protein by 50%, Tuesday, I'm going to have a better response to that protein when I start eating it again. Um, and it makes sense because our body is such an adaptive thing. Um, if you have a very specific goal in the short term, I don't like it as much. Um, and then also, too, like we got to remember uh, satiety is so high. So I actually had this recently with a client who we implemented this day because she was getting kind of sick of the same proteins. And we wanted to implement a day where we lowered proteins, maybe just ate tofu and some veggies. Um, and we just chilled out on it a little bit. But her hunger was through the roof because – protein has the, is the most satiating nutrient. So if you have a fat loss goal, the problem with that is, is if your hunger goes through the roof and you have to supplement that protein with carbs and fats, carbs and fats are much more likely to store as body fat than protein by a long shot. So it, it really depends on where you're at with your goals. Um, I would probably implement a intermittent fasting day of like 16, 18 hours with a low protein vegan day because it'll be easier to adhere to. Um, and I do think it would give some benefits, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to quiz Dr. Jose Antonio on this as well. Courtney has another question. Um, and I think this is a good one, uh, before I get, so I still have like eight Instagram questions that I haven't answered yet. So, uh, we're probably not going to get through them all today. Foot strength. I listened to a podcast recently that said our decreased foot strength from our super comfy shoes and never going barefoot anymore is causing a lot of knee, hip, and back pain. What are your thoughts? Should coaches start including foot strength uh, into their programming? Um, I have some thoughts on it. Number one is feet kind of gross me out to a standpoint, <laughs> to a certain point. So if you're in the gym, in a public gym, and you have no shoes on, come on, man. Wear some socks. Uh, that's rule number one. Um, I remember working at at the gym and uh, 
we had a dude that was like all over the gym barefoot and i'm like man you're, you're in a different state it's not even your gym like and you're just barefoot and then i'm at the urinal taking a pee and this guy walks up to me barefoot and i'm like dude we have a clean bathroom but that's gross don't do that um so that's rule number one wear some socks you get the same benefit now i do agree with this because so if we if we look at our hands this is just common sense to me if we look at our hands we have so many nerve endings in our hands that's what we feel with that's what we get texture from that's how we grab things that's how we know what to do with our these things that are like our utensils for living well our feet are supposed to have just as many nerves the problem with it is is that we put two layers on them every single day socks and shoes and we've actually broken those nerves um, over time so we're not really having the same nerve endings we're not getting the same benefit from our feet that we're supposed to because they're supposed to be like second hands um and that's been documented so i mean imagine putting like latex gloves and then uh like snow gloves on your hands every day that'd be insane over time you would just have no feeling in your in your hands and your fingers um you'd probably like lose your fingerprints it'd be weird so um, I believe in that. Um, I believe that I know that like going barefoot does strengthen the stabilizer muscles in your foot. And those can actually have a big effect on your ankle mobility, your knee stability, hip mobility, all the way up the chain. Um, and we talked about that with the valgus knee. Like that's huge. If you can't grip the floor, feel the floor, um, use those nerves um, in going barefoot actually improves your pr proprioception over time, um, your nerve endings over time. It doesn't happen overnight, um, but it does happen, um, and that'll help your balance, help your mobility. Um, and it can actually, there's been some stuff that shows it might be able to actually help muscle alignment. So you might actually feel activation uh, during a, a lift a little bit better because they can't make a shoe perfectly forming to what your feet look like because everybody's foot, toes, um, arch, joint, they're all different, right? Um, and I read somewhere that we had like 20 to 30% of all of our joints are actually in our feet, which is insane. Um, so there's a lot going on in our feet. So I think it is important to do barefoot stuff. I'm just not a big fan of like jumping into it because I think if you jump right into it, you will get a little overkill on some stuff. Um, you might actually have some more aches and pains. So you got to ease into it. I'm a big fan of never wearing shoes in my house. Like I do barefoot all day in my house because I want my feet feeling constantly. Um, I usually train barefoot since it's in my garage or wear socks um, unless I'm doing like a squat um, or a deadlift. And I actually know deadlift I wear barefoot usually. Uh, but even my upper body stuff like my overhead press, I love going barefoot because I can grip the floor. So I think it is important. The reason I don't do it with squats is because I prefer my heels elevated. Um, so it kind of depends, but I do believe that um, it is going to be beneficial to a standpoint. Um, yeah, so uh, let's let's crank out a couple of Instagram questions as well. Pull these bad boys up. Um, damn, 52 minutes. I'm on, I'm on a roll, guys. All right, so this is a good one. Um, letting go of past failures and mindsets and using them as tools to progress you in the present from Rhiannon Daniela, 36. I think this is huge. Um, I think that... I mean, we've heard it a million times. There are no such thing as failures, right? Like people always say, "What is what's your what's the like your biggest failure?" It's like, "Oh, I don't have any failures. I just have lessons." Like, I think that's kind of cheesy to say, and you kind of like sound a macho or some shit. But, um, but I do believe it's true. I think that if you can't look at failures as a lesson, then I believe that you are not set up for su success in the long term. Um, I think it's very, very key. I think it's paramount. I think it's the biggest thing. Um, if you – how do I say this? If if we're going down a path and thinking that we're never going to hit a roadblock, a plateau, a stop sign, a speed bump, then we're batshit crazy. 
there's always going to be those things. And when those things come up, we need to have course corrections. But the only way we know how to course correct to move on to a different path and keep going towards the end goal, the end result, the end destination is to learn from our lessons in the past. So I'm a big fan of reflecting on these. I journal shitty things that happen, failures that happen, why I'm having anxiety and I analyze them and I dive into the the actual logical process behind it. What is going on that is causing this failure? What is going on that is causing me to slip up? I need to learn from this because it's bound to happen again if I don't. So I think that learning from past failures is the, one of the biggest key. Um, and, and the key of learning them is letting go, like she said, like letting go of Failures and mindsets is basically saying like, okay, I have anxiety. Okay, I failed. Okay, I fucked up. No biggie. Let it go. Be done with it. And if you can be done with it, you can actually learn how to learn from it. If you can't be done with it, you will not learn from it. It's it's at the end of the day. Um, and I think the key to that is, like I said, journal it. Positive focus is something I use with me, myself and all my mentor clients. Um, what happened? What's the lesson learned? How can you learn from that? And then I had showed them how to apply it to different areas of their life. Um, the four pillars of power, like I talk about a lot. Um, it's just it's just a key, right? Like I think I do that every day because of this. So um, I'm a big fan of journaling the process. Um, there's not much more for me to say on this question besides the fact that it's crucial. Ovaries and omelets. This is going to be the last question. Actually, no, we're going to do one more because um, there's one on here I want to answer Ovaries and omelets asked, how does alcohol fit into a flexible diet when you count macros? So alcohol is interesting. I got a raspy ass voice and I didn't, I don't know what it's from. It's crazy. My voice has just been raspy the last like week. And now my throat's getting dry. That sounded creepy. Um, ovaries and omelets. How do we fit alcohol into macros? Alcohol is a funny. So if we look at the way I like to look at this or explain it is this. If we look at carbohydrates, carbohydrates are glucose. Glucose is glycogen. Get started glycogen, right? So carbohydrates have four calories per gram. Carbohydrates are eaten as glucose, right? Well, or fructose, I guess you can say, too, because sugar and fruit. But anyway, alcohol is consumed as alcohol and it has seven calories per gram, but the nutrient itself is ethanol. So just like carbs, it has its own entity, its own, like, I don't know, molecule structure, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's ethanol. Ethanol is alcohol. Ethanol has seven calories per gram. So it's its own macronutrient. The problem with that is my fitness pal, these trackers, they don't recognize that as a macronutrient because it's not a macronutrient that actually benefits us whatsoever. Like ethanol itself gets us drunk. It does nothing good for us. It's a toxin in the body and our body will stop all other hormonal processes, which one being testosterone, sex hormone, um, I believe cortisol go, uh, gets fucked with. And I know that uh, uh, lipolysis, so like the actual metabolization of fat, uh, that stops as well when alcohol is in our system because our body just wants to get rid of this alcohol. Um, and the problem with that is we can't track it with that. So what I suggest doing and what – so here, here's the deal. Like the number one thing to remember with calories and macros in flexible dieting is you should track macros first. The reason you should track macros first is because food labels typically round up or down. So if something is 95 calories, it's going to say 100 calories. If it's 94 calories, it might say 90 calories. Well, by the end of the day, all these estimations are going to throw your calories off even when your macros are dead on. So it's no sense in burning yourself or stressing yourself looking at the calorie, excuse me, calories and being like, oh, my macros are so spot on, but my calories are off. What's going on? Just track your macros. When alcohol is involved, 
MyFitnessPal is not going to count that ethanol that is seven calories per gram, and you don't have macros for that. We don't prescribe macros as, all right, each day you're going to consume 200 protein, 300 carbs, 60 fat, and 50 grams of ethanol. That's not how it works. So what you need to do is subtract one of the other macros and just track calories. And what I mean by that is like, okay, today I'm going to be drinking. So all I'm going to track for sure is I'm going to make sure protein is spot on and I'm going to make sure calories are spot on, aka within 50 to 100 maybe because we know they estimate. At that point, I go, okay, I'm going to consume uh, these three drinks and for easy math, they equal 500 calories. Okay, that's a lot of calories from alcohol, but if you want to go party, let's do it. I'm going to take that 500 calories and I'm going to split it into two. 250, 250. I'm going to take 250 calories away from carbs. So I'm going to divide 250 by four. And then I'm going to take 250 calories, calories away from fat. So I'm going to divide 250 by nine. This is going to give me enough room in my calories to still hit my protein and make sure protein. So I'm satiated. Uh, I'm hitting my recovery needs. Um, I'm eating a nutrient that's not going to, that's going to fill me up and not really store as fat. And then I have enough room via carbs and fat because I took them away to implement some alcohol. That's how you fit it into flexible dieting and not gain any weight from it. If you fit alcohol into your calories, you will not gain any weight unless it's on a chronic level where you're drinking every single day um, because you're going to become malnourished. Your cortisol is going to go through the roof. Testosterone is going to lower. You're probably going to gain some fat. But on a short-term level and when you're occasionally drinking, they have studies to document this. If you fit alcohol into your diet once a week, you're totally fine. You're not going to gain any weight. You're not going to improve on those days. So you might be burning fat Monday through Friday, but when you drink Saturday night, it's going to take you a couple days to get your body back to a state where it's going to be burning fat again properly. Um, so that's kind of how this whole situation works. Typically, because of the way alcohol is metabolized in the body versus uh, anything else, I usually recommend people withdraw from fat for a couple of reasons. One, Fat, lipolysis, fat is processed in the liver a similar way as alcohol from what some studies have alluded to. Um, so it might be better off. Number two, the reason is is because um, most studies show this. If you're not overeating, if you're at maintenance or in a, in a deficit or whatever, fat is actually more likely to store as body fat than carbs are. Carbs are going to be – especially if you have muscle mass and you're like a bodybuilder or anything like that or you're a physique athlete or you're training hard, carbs are going to be utilized to replenish glycogen first and foremost because that's what your body knows to do with them, uh, whereas fat is kind of second, right? We use that for maintenance. We use that for hormonal regulation, things like that, but we don't need a ton of it if it's not our fuel source, which is very rare that it's a fuel source unless you're going into a state of ketosis. So – because of that, I recommend as well withdrawing fat. The last reason is because carbs are a little bit more filling from a standpoint that alcohol can kind of soak them up. So if we eat some protein and carbs, we feel a little bit more fuller. We have a little bit more substance in our stomach. The alcohol is going to feel like it soaks it up a little bit. Um, I, that's actually not happening in your body, but that's what it feels like. And that allows you to not feel so drunk. And I think that's important to not get shitty. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of my spiel on that. Um, we had one more. We have a lot. Um, damn, I'm going to have to do a second Q&A. Um, I'm going to do this last one from Adriana.ling. Would you love to know more about – would love to know more about intra-workout carbs. When to use them, pros slash cons for fat loss slash massing. Do you use them for performing other than pure lifting? Do you – do they pair well 
with CrossFit as well. Thank you. So um, I'm going to do those in reverse. Number one, I do not think they pair well with CrossFit um, in most cases because CrossFit is such an intense sport. It's such a fast-paced sport and hard training system that I don't think it's smart to be trying to consume any type of nutrient besides water or BCAs or Gatorade or anything like that. Um, Simple, simple, simple sugars um, while you're training. Um, I think it is better as a modality afterwards. And and there's a couple reasons. One, I don't want your body thinking about digesting at all. And number two, if we look at what drives high-intensity intervals um, and high-intensity performance, it's cortisol. Cortisol goes up when we train hard like that. Cortisol is going to help adrenaline get up, and you're going to train balls to the wall. Intro workout carbs, depending on the person, um, it's very individual because of dopamine, serotonin, hormonal levels, things like that, intensity, um, body fat levels, muscle mass levels. Intra-workout carbs can blunt that cortisol response, and that might not be the best thing when you're going for a, an Olympic lift or a wad. Um, and this is exactly why Charles Poliquin is not a fan of intra-workout carbs. He works with Olympic athletes who are doing snatches and, and cleans and things like that. It's very explosive. Um, you need cortisol up to perform those lifts. Now, after your workout, you're not going to want cortisol elevated chronically. So you don't want to continue riding that cortisol wave. You actually want to blunt it down and calm the cortisol response down. In that case, what you want to do is actually have that intra-workout carb with some protein post-workout immediately. This carb slash protein shake after your workout is going to help blunt that cortisol response, get you back into parasympathetic mode, lower cortisol, um, and get you back to a stress-free zone where you can actually recover. Um, I think they are better um, performing only lifting. So you ask, like, is it just for performance other than pure lifting? Um, I'm not a fan of it during conditioning for the same exact purpose. Conditioning, you want to be going balls to the wall or conditioning is at such a lower level intensity that you really like list cardio or, or steady state or anything like that. You just don't need them. Um, lifting, I do like them for like a bodybuilder because I do believe that and there's some data to show that if we can put carbohydrates in that window of working out during the period, um, it's going to be if it's partnered with essential amino acids or uh, like a, a Pepto Pro, which is like a um, high molecular peptide protein, which basically breaks down immediately, like faster than anything else. Um, it's easier on the gut, so it bypasses like the intestinal wall process and just goes right to your uh, your muscle cells um, versus like whey protein you have to digest a little bit um, in casein. So I believe in that for bodybuilders. I do it myself. I, I literally just recently cut it out because we lowered my carbs and this is kind of like where I recommend it for fat loss. Um, I think it's a pro because it will help build muscle. Like there's studies to show cross-sectional muscle tissue grew more in the group that had intra-workout carbs, which I think is great for fat loss and muscle. And it's even better for people who are on a cut and want to maintain as much muscle as possible because it's ensuring that you're not breaking it down during a training session. You're probably not going to build muscle in that deficit on the cut, but you are going to maintain as much as possible. So I usually use it. Now, we recently cut my carbs to a level for adherence. I was like, I'm not going to waste 40 grams of carbs during my workout. I'm not even going to waste 25. I'm going to use that on food because adherence-wise, I know I'm going to make it through the, the next 9 to 10 weeks easier not having intra-workout carbs and just having all carbs from food because, again, overall calories matter most. Um, so that's kind of the pros and cons. It does help. Um, I think it's great for massing. If somebody's massing, I think it's perfect because you can only eat so much in a day. I would very highly recommend people – take 40 grams of their carbs from their meals and put it into an intra-workout shake from something that is highly branched cyclic dextrin. That's the best source for intra-workout carbs. And I think it's great. Um, so that's kind of like my spiel on it. Um, you can use the same carbohydrates for 
for intra or post. I think it just depends on your sport. If you're going for pure muscle, it's great. If you're going for as much muscle as possible while you're on a cut and you can afford to, uh, afford to adhere to your program, nutritional protocol, while doing intra-workout carbs instead of with your meals, I think it's great. Um, it's just an adherence standpoint. And if you're a CrossFit or an Olympic athlete, I think it's best done uh, immediately post-workout. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the all-inclusive guide to mastering your diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes chart. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spend a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.